This podcast discusses sensitive topics that may contain graphic depictions of violence, substance use, self-harm, explicit language, and other content that some listeners may find disturbing or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. I remember once I tried to drown myself in my grandma's pool. I was too young to realize it's impossible to drown oneself unless fixed to something heavy. The lungs will seek air and take a breath whether you want them to or not. Welcome to the Survivor Story Podcast. You are invited to open your hearts and ears to the powerful stories of others. Here, you are no longer alone. You hear your experience, your strength, your hope in the words of others. Join us on this journey as we conquer our past, live in the present, and dream for our future. Together we choose our story. Welcome everybody to the Survivor Story Podcast. Thank you for being here. Today we are featuring Caitlin's story, which is such a powerful and emotional journey. She really teaches us that the work is never done. Caitlin is a big inspiration in my life. We met through yoga teacher training she offers us so much wisdom. I never knew the extent of her story, even before having her on this podcast. And it was once she was on this podcast and she told me and all of us everything that she has been through and has experienced. I was filled with surprise and sadness and empathy and I'm so glad that she came up here and spoke so honestly and with such vulnerability she really just laid it all out onto the table so we'll just dive into the story I do want to warn you that the audio was a little tweaked Um, you can hear her clearly but there is a slight maybe buzz sound that you might hear on certain headphones or stereos so I apologize for that but I still think the interview has a lot of great inspiration and wisdom and so without further ado just get really cozy find a nice little spot and listen to Caitlin's story I was born and raised in Southern California in an affluent neighborhood just south of Los Angeles in the shadow of the Hollywood sign, literally and metaphorically. I was the third and last child born to a tense, high-strung, angry, emotive, aggressive dad and a passive, scared, small, quiet mother. My dad dictated the dominant feelings in my home, which was blame and anger. My mother instilled the dominant feelings within my upbringing, which was fear and shame. Nothing seemed to frustrate my dad more than fear and passivity, which my mom and older brother embodied. He snapped and took his anger out on them physically and verbally on a regular basis. 
In my first childhood home, my bedroom on the second floor was positioned over my brother's bedroom on the first floor. We'd communicate with each other through the heater duct, which made it sound like our voices were right next to each other. On nights in which my brother was in trouble, my sister and I would huddle around the heater vent and listen to my dad abusing my brother, paralyzed, wanting to intervene but not wanting to. To this day, I'm consumed with loss and guilt for not stepping in for my brother throughout his life. Time and time again, I've let opportunities to stand up for my brother slip away. It hurts to be a coward, and it also hurts to be brave. No matter what, it hurts. We were always walking on eggshells. Every time my dad returned home from work at night, we'd hold our breath as he made his rounds around the house, looking for something to trigger him. Rollerblade streaks on the tile floor, dishes in the sink, the wrong lamp turned on. In my mind, I can still hear the thump, thump, thump of his footsteps looming closer down the hall toward my bedroom, and the memory makes my heart beat fast. My dad found humor in laughing at others, and I learned from a young age that I could lighten the mood and keep my siblings safe by encouraging my family members to laugh at me. Mostly my jokes centered around how unintelligent and incapable I was. My dad found blonde jokes very humorous, and I was the token blonde. <clears throat> it was a fair trade. I was happy to be the object of a joke and sacrifice my dignity to keep things copacetic although I didn't realize I was doing that at the time. At the time, I was simply surviving, and that was my mechanism. My other survival mechanism, which I learned from my mom, was to stay small, stay quiet, and stay under the radar. I kept my distance from my dad whenever possible. Learning to read was a pivotal turning point in my upbringing because I found solace and escape in books and stories. When I couldn't access stories, I wrote them myself. Neighbors and family friends jokingly referred to me as the closet child because I was always shut up in my room reading or imagining. Shutting myself away from community and seeking refuge in my imagination was an early coping mechanism I still notice in myself today, 30 years later. It wouldn't do for my parents, who valued maintaining a facade of perfection and respectable social standing above all else, to have an introverted closet child, so I was put into dance lessons and eventually pushed on stage in makeup and costumes. I went with it, because it was another distracting form of entertainment from my family and it gave my mom a positive focus. My physical appearance was important to my mom who carried with her a lifetime eating disorder, which she passed on to me. If there was a circumstance in which I wanted a piece of cake or butter on my toast, she'd remind me of the calorie count and repeat one of her favorite adages. There's no such thing as a fat ballerina. Or, in your mouth a few seconds, in your stomach a few hours, on your hips the rest of your life. Or, hunger is your best friend. I was, in actuality, a tiny kid, but my mom's focus on my body gave my siblings and dad another way to laugh at me. My elementary school-age family nicknames were Lunchbox and Butterball. This was about the time melancholy and thoughts of suicide made their appearance. 
And when my brother and sister laughed at my body, I wanted to peel my skin off. I remember once I tried to drown myself in my grandma's pool. I was too young to realize it's impossible to drown oneself unless fixed to something heavy. The lungs will seek air and take a breath whether you want them to or not. To this day, no one knows how often I thought about killing myself. I mourned for the young girl who spent years being hungry, surrounded by food I felt I didn't deserve to eat. How dare I have a body? I don't remember when things first began to get hard or difficult because as a child, your home life and family circumstance is all you know. You think that's how life is for everyone. I don't remember feeling troubled by being scared, tense, and shamed. That was simply my experience. Not good or bad, just was. Outwardly, I was actually a happy kid, bright and sunny and cooperative and accommodating because that's what kept me safe. To appear happy was to be liked. To be liked was to be safe. There were a few instances in my childhood in which I was shown that actually my home life was not normal. These instances were little windows that gave me a view into how other people think and live, and these glimpses were confusing. One such occurrence was when I was about eight. My brother and I were rollerblading around my neighborhood, knocking on doors and asking neighbors to pledge donations to my elementary school's upcoming Jogathon fundraiser. Knocking on people's doors and asking strangers for money is my idea of a terrible nightmare. For a shy kid, it was torture to knock on a stranger's door and try to explain something I didn't really understand, but my brother was making me do it. After a while, I refused to knock on any more doors. Robbie argued with me. He said I had nothing to be embarrassed about. I was a cute girl in pigtails and pink skates and no one could say no to me. I felt uncomfortable. I refused. And without warning and no time to dodge, Robbie swung his hand back and slapped me hard across the face. I wouldn't have thought this was weird or shocking, except from behind us, we heard an angry voice shout, hey. <clears throat> Turning around, we saw a man standing across the street holding a fishing pole and looking furious. In a foreboding and stern voice, he addressed my brother, come here. There was no second thought. My brother and I instinctually bolted and fled the scene, rollerblading fast down the serpentine alleyways and narrow streets of my neighborhood. At last, we stopped and Robbie looked at me and said, I'm sorry. Forgiving him was just as instinctual as running away from the man who wanted to lecture my brother. I simply didn't see anything wrong with my brother hitting me. I was more afraid of the man who wanted to threaten my paradigm by yelling at my brother for hitting me than I was of my brother. It was absolutely normal to be hit. By running away with my brother, I might have missed my opportunity to learn from a complete stranger that it's wrong to hit girls, something I shouldn't have to take or forgive. But I didn't know any different. I had no idea I had rights. I was just a little girl in pigtails and pink skates. The shy girl with the pigtails eventually grew out of the pink skates. In high school, I discovered alcohol, drugs, and sex. I gave my virginity away like it was a stick of gum. 
As you can imagine, the girl that spent her life diminishing and objectifying herself in order to stay safe and feel accepted found sex, drugs, and alcohol to be necessary, comfortable allies. My high school years were marked by witnessing my parents' unhappy marriage, the downward spiral of my brother's quality of life, and the development of my sister's trauma and how she dealt with it. She aborted a late-term pregnancy in secret. I knew I was 15. We all had our things. My dad had his anger in porn. My mom had her compulsive shopping in Xanax cocktails. My brother had his drugs and alcohol. My sister had her secret shoplifting habit and compulsive lying. I had my disassociation abilities, alcohol, and self-destructive tendencies. We hid it all. I put myself in a lot of dangerous situations in which I allowed my body to be abused and disrespected. In my pursuit to feel touched and wanted, I didn't realize that what I actually desired was to feel loved. I was searching for something in boys and men that I didn't know how to communicate or recognize. So I went to the wrong places with the wrong people. I was the wrong people. My dad left in my senior year of high school. I expected it and actually hoped for it. He'd been sleeping in my sister's room as she was away at college and you could cut the tension in the house with a knife. The silence was strangling. I was a cheerleader at this time and I remember thinking I was such a poser during the rallies, jumping and screaming like I was happy when I was living with such darkness at home. I'd drive to school crying and wipe my tears before I jumped on the rally stage. My uniform was repulsive, and I hated wearing it. It was overly tight, and I couldn't breathe. It represented something I didn't feel I was on the inside, but I couldn't let anybody in. None of my friends knew what was going on. A friend of mine, another girl on the cheer team, once told me she was jealous of me because of the big house I lived in. I remember thinking, you have no idea what goes on in this house. I never divulged the truth, which was that I was jealous of her. I was expecting to leave for college the following year and didn't want my mom alone in the house with him. So it was a relief when he moved out and served my mom with divorce papers. The fall morning I was scheduled to take my driver's license test was the morning we received a knock on the door and my mom was served. I failed my test. My mom completely lost it. Like a dam breaking, 25 years of pent-up resentment was unleashed and ushered in a very messy divorce to which I had an intimate front row seat. I chose to attend the one out-of-state college that accepted me and spent the remainder of my senior year drinking as much as possible, discovering heroin, and holding my mom during her nightly breakdowns. Muddled with Xanax and alcohol, she told me every terrible thing my dad ever did, infidelity, abuse, all the threats he gave her in court. They both wanted to break each other, tear each other down, and take everything they had. They were both so angry. As an impressionable 17-year-old, I ate it up and bought into the us-against-them game. I victimized myself and demonized my dad. 
I left for college unaware of the wreckage and dysfunction of my family dynamic because I was distracted with keeping up appearances. Upon my mom's strong encouragement, I joined a sorority. The social trauma I experienced throughout Rush, Pledge Week, and my time in that sorority is a whole other podcast. We can get into it if we want, but for the sake of brevity, I'll say that during this time, I completely lost touch with myself and everything that made me remotely happy. I didn't even read or write or imagine. I just drank and ate everything my mom wouldn't let me eat when I lived at home, and I threw up, ate again, threw up, felt awful, repeated the process. My mom would call me nightly, drunk, with news about the latest trouble my brother was in or the latest terrible thing my dad said or did. I made no friends in college. In a world that told me I had to be beautiful or cast out, I couldn't let anybody know how ugly I actually was on the inside. I remember chain-smoking cigarettes on a bench outside my dorm for the sole purpose and fantasy that someone might sit down and talk to me, but also terrified by the idea that someone might sit down and talk to me. I wanted connection, but I didn't want to be seen. I was desperately lonely, depressed, and incapable of reaching out. I stopped going to class, failed out of my freshman year, and went home to California for the summer on academic probation. While at home, my mom sat me down for a serious conversation. I steeled myself, thinking she was going to bring up my grades and the consequences for failing my classes. We need to talk, she said. I knew we needed to talk. I was in a downward spiral, failing out of school and obviously depressed. She took me by surprise when she continued. We need to talk about your weight. You need to go on a diet this summer. She never asked about my grades. I never told her. At one point, I did come to her for help with my struggle with bulimia, but she brushed it off and treated it like it wasn't a big deal or anything I should worry about. I continued emotionally eating, binging and purging, and feeling awful for it. Academically, I was given a second chance my sophomore year, and somehow I held on to the grades that allowed me to stay in school. The alternative was going back to my hometown and potentially falling back into the same crowd that introduced me to heroin, that lovely, beautiful drug I enjoyed throughout my senior year in high school. In hindsight, it's fortunate I stayed in school, removed from my connections, although I was miserable and lonely in college. My self-destructive tendencies would have led me down a darker path if I would have stayed in my familiar hometown. And then a virtuous thing happened. A girl in my sorority tried to befriend me. I say try because I was initially standoffish and confused by her kindness and the point she made to say hi to me. Eventually, she started inviting me places and I started accepting her invitations because I observed she was genuinely cool and pure at heart and I felt comfortable around her. 
She had grown up in our college town and had a close relationship with her family, childhood friends, and the desert environment that raised her. She got me off campus and into nature and yoga classes. She introduced me to other locals, friends she grew up with who camped and rock climbed and didn't give a fuck about appearances. It was so refreshing, so novel. I felt like I had finally come home to these people that sought adventures in nature and smoked pot and talked about philosophical ideas. I blossomed around these people. They helped me contact a wild sense of freedom that I was never allowed to feel before. I ended up dating one of these locals, Steve, the first person to see through my carefully crafted bulletproof facade. He saw everything, the darkness and insecurities and struggles. He was totally accepting. He was the first person to teach me it's okay to crack open a little bit. It didn't work out with Steve because I was a complete mess and had a lot of inner work to do in order to make a relationship work, but that was the relationship that sparked inner growth and put me in contact with my inner wild feminine, that aspect of myself that had been suppressed since birth, the aspect that urges me to question what I'm told, take up space, speak my truth, honor my power, my feelings, my existence. It was around this time I started to realize that I mattered. What I thought mattered. How I wanted to spend my time mattered. Living for me and not for others mattered. That novel idea was starting to take hold, but it was so outrageous that it took a while, years of waffling back and forth between insecurity and bravery before I became truly convinced that I could live a life I actually want for myself as opposed to living a life others want for me. Upon college graduation, I left town undecided about my next step moved in with my sister in San Diego and fell back into old destructive habits, over-drinking, over-consuming, allowing family members to think and speak for me, engaging in self-diminishing relationships. One poignant memory was when I was flirting with a man I met and admired. He was, I was simply enjoying company and conversation and I didn't feel like sleeping with him. He told me I was boring for not sleeping with him. So I slept with him and walked home the next morning feeling dirty. Being boring to someone else was a greater crime than not being true to myself. My sense of self-worth was entangled in how I was perceived by others, which distracted me from remembering that I matter. I was so busy looking for validation from others that I matter that I forgot the only opinion that actually matters is mine. I hit a rock bottom low in San Diego, which eventually gave me the adrenaline and courage to quit my job, throw away my belongings, and spend my savings traveling and practicing yoga in Costa Rica. Anything that did not fit in my backpack, I threw in a dumpster with zero regard. I slung a yoga mat over my shoulder and boarded the plane with a loose idea of a destination and zero future plans, only to meditate 
practice yoga in the jungle and surf in the ocean. My mom was appalled. My sister was furious. My brother, who was in jail at the time, tried to contact me and tell me not to go. My dad drove me to the airport. He slipped me a $100 bill and told me to keep it for emergencies. When I bought the plane ticket, I expected Costa Rica would be the experience I needed to break free from old conditioning and finally pursue the life I wanted for myself. Costa Rica was special, but in hindsight, it was actually the immense amount of bravery it took before I even left to face my family members' strong opinions and say, thank you, but no. That initiated a sense of inner strength. The decision I made to leave a job and a life that wasn't serving me, despite the strong urging of others, was a pivotal tipping point in claiming my life. Gaining that physical, mental, and emotional distance from my family's influence helped me tune in and get in touch with myself. In my travels, I met like-minded people and surprised myself when I made friends and felt a sense of belonging. When I returned to the States, I was a little more connected to my feelings, my desires, my inner compass, the type of life I wanted for myself. I had no plans, nowhere to be, no one I was connected with, and a little money left in the bank. I took an unplanned, spontaneous, solo road trip up to Portland, Oregon, and wandered around the city on foot. Each day, I sat amongst homeless people at a long table at the library downtown with my laptop open, writing stories. And I slept in a communal hostel room at night. Eventually, I ran out of money and returned to my parents. I stayed with my mom, who had moved to Arizona for a few months, and then I drove home to my hometown to live with my dad until I could find a job and a place to live. It wasn't long after I returned that I met my husband, who blew my world wide open and ushered in a phase of self-growth and healing I never thought imaginable. still messed up me when I met Jeff, so it's kind of a miracle he was into me. <laughs> he was wise and put together and handsome and responsible and kind and respectful, and he cared, and he treated me like I mattered. Being with him was like being home. Life was literally brighter. I noticed beautiful things. The summer I met Jeff was like one long ecstatic psychedelic trip, and I didn't want it to end. So I put up my manicured facade and charmed the pants off him, terrified and waiting for the moment I'd inevitably break down and reveal my insecurities, my pain, struggle, and shadow aspects. That eventually happened, but he stayed. Little by little, I cracked open and revealed everything, and he stayed. It wasn't long before we moved in together and I was still directionless and jobless. He said, I want you to do whatever you want to do. No one had ever said that to me. What I wanted to do was I wanted to sit on the couch and smoke pot and play guitar. And so I did. 
I rested. I did exactly what I wanted to do. I played guitar until my fingers hurt, and I sang until I found my voice. I learned how to listen. I learned how to be in relationship. I learned how to be in love. My journey in learning how to accept love carried into our marriage. The early years of marriage were difficult for me because my insecurities were deeply rooted and I was just beginning to learn how to notice and tend to them. I have one poignant memory that took place a couple years into our marriage in which I was ugly crying alone in the bathtub. Snot and tears were crying into the water and I badly wanted to shed it all. The tears, the snot, the shame, the fear, the insecurity. I was afraid of being left by Jeff. I was afraid my insecurity would ruin our marriage. I didn't want to be married anymore. I didn't want to live anymore. The struggle with facing my pain was too much. I felt dejected like Arjuna on the battlefield. I cried for my past, for the little girl who watched her father disrespect her mother, who grew into a teen and slutted herself around because she so badly wanted to feel loved, who grew into an adult and carried that guilt and shame around like a heavy coat in summer. I cried for her, knowing I don't have to be her, knowing I could let her go, but not knowing how. I told myself I could let go and tears flowed. Then in the warmth and silence of the tub, I prayed. I call it praying because I realized I needed help and I spoke to something larger in myself, appealing to any spirit who would listen. Jesus, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, Mother Mary, Krishna, Buddha, Shiva, Yogananda, black women, Asian women, Hispanic women, and I said, dear God, please help me be a woman. And then I cried harder, feeling my desire and my despair, the depth of what I wanted so badly. It was the most poignant moment of my life at that point, realizing I had been mistreated as a girl and forgiving myself for mistreating myself and crying because it didn't have to go on anymore. For like Arjuna, I had resolved to fight the battle. And then I got the answer to my prayer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, I thought, because I'm going to die. It doesn't matter if I'm loved. It doesn't matter what people think of me. It doesn't matter if I'm liked. It doesn't matter if I can trust anyone. It doesn't matter what I'm given in life. What matters is that I love, that I trust, that I give. What matters is what comes from me. Pain doesn't matter. Pleasure doesn't matter. Anger, insecurity, they don't matter because they are transient, not lasting. That which doesn't last doesn't matter. What matters is this moment now. Now is the only time and place in which you can make the choice to be strong or to be swept away. Now, 
is the only time and place you can choose to either move forward or stay stuck in your suffering attached to transient things. But not even that matters. I got the second answer to my prayer later that night when I was listening to Jeff play guitar. I thought, just let yourself be loved. I started crying again because at that time I didn't know how to do that. Life is a shedding. It's an unfolding. We're given these things at birth that we didn't seem to choose. The process of releasing that which you don't need, old stories, conditioning, insecurities, stale fears, is lifelong but noble work. We're presented with many transient experiences in life that leave their mark, but if we stay connected to that which is constant, the connection with our inner self, we can stay connected with that which matters and soften around that which doesn't. So here I'm going to begin talking about the resolution part of my story. And uh, in the outline, I think we use the word resolution. But I'm not sure if that's an accurate word for my experience. Uh, For me, there has been no resolution. The struggle is still here. And I meet it daily. Some days are easier than others. In some ways, uh, the struggle got harder, uh, but I got stronger as I realized my capacity to hold my pain as opposed to letting it control my reactions. I fell into a deep depressive state after I gave birth to my kids. I'm still crawling out of it. When my kids were babies, I felt trapped and smothered, confused and sad because I thought I would love being a mom. It turned out to be a lot harder than expected. Motherhood, for me, has this poignant way of holding a mirror up to the relationship that I have with myself, which oftentimes is that small, fearful, overwhelmed, self-diminishing little girl in the pink skates. Other times in that mirror, I see my dad. I see my angry dad in myself all the time. In my intensely emotive reactions to things. When I don't want to face something in myself, I find fault in those closest to me and I let uh, myself feel anger over those faults as the cause of my misery. And I'm mildly aware of this as I'm doing it and I try to nudge myself toward the truth but I don't go there in moments of weakness because the truth is like a wound and it hurts. I don't want to look in the mirror of truth in my moments of weakness, so I let surface level issues knock me over like a tidal wave, not seeing that those surface level issues are the symptoms of what I refuse to see in that moment, myself. I don't want to see myself. I want to wallow and cling to my sadness like it's a life preserver, for if I float free of it, my sadness might die, and because I identify so deeply with my sadness, I might die. My sadness doesn't want to die. 
it wants to be there. So I let it be there. But I think other things can be there too, like that nudger, the one that nudges me toward the truth. I'm like the mother of many emotions and I'm letting them rule me as opposed to the other way around. It's not easy being an unruffled mother because a mother is so attached to her children, but I think it's possible. Anything is possible for a mother because of the love she has for her children. Mother energy is limitlessly powerful. Sometimes I don't want to be a mom because the responsibility is too great and I feel so small. I have many moments, all moments, in which I don't know what I'm doing. I just act. It's all I can do. Life is made up of moments in which we don't think. We act. We act according to the character we've built over the course of time with our feelings, thoughts, and reactions to things that have happened to us. We're creating our lives moment to moment with action that is dictated by the mental climate of our previous selves. So how do I break that cycle? Work. Sometimes I do the work, sometimes I don't. It can get exhausting. I have not scratched the surface of the work I could be doing in order to begin living consciously. When my son was one, suicide was a daily fantasy. I knew I wouldn't do it because my love for my son was greater than my misery. I was willing to hold on for him, but it was an endurance challenge for the soul. It was soothing for me to think about killing myself in the really hard moments of motherhood, those moments of feeling smothered and trapped and not enough visualizing myself putting a gun to my head or bleeding out in the bathtub reminded me that I had a way out. Knowing I had a way out helped me hang on and choose my son. When I found out I was pregnant with my daughter, shit got real. <laughs> I had to make a choice. Let my depression control me or get a grip on my depression. I couldn't start this family just to bow out. So I started a happiness journal <laughs> to document my journal to find happiness. It was supposed to be a tangible thing that could anchor me to my lifelong dream to actually live. I've always been a ghost, barely here, barely hanging on, feeling different, unseen, alien. I wanted to step fully into living, but didn't know how. I began by faking it. I thought about the things happy people would do, and I started doing those things. A happy person eats healthy food because she loves herself and wants to do good things for herself. A happy person would go on a walk to hear the wind in the trees. A happy person would play with her dog. I did those things because that's what a happy person would do. And the pretending kind of helped. It was a start. What also helped was cultivating awareness and staying with myself in the dark places. When I didn't deny the bad place I was in, I realized sometimes going to the bad places offers the clarity you need in order to make change.
after maintaining a daily journal and reflecting on happiness, I realized happiness starts with honesty. Yes, the struggle is there. It's always going to be there. Maybe happiness comes from the way we respond to struggle. I can't control my reactions. I can control my lifestyle choices, my practice, self-care, taking time for myself, so that in those hard moments that I can't control, perhaps my reaction to them won't be so ugly. At the time I was pregnant with my second child and trying to consciously create happiness in my life, I attended my sister's wedding, which was a big wedding with all the people from our past. Piles and piles, years and years of family dysfunction was thrown in my face and decorated with flowers and lace. The divorce and breakup of my family, my sister's estrangement from my dad, my brother's addiction, my mom's addiction to emotionally abusive relationships. There was so much and it was all there and I was the matron of honor. My job was to sit and have my makeup done and pin my dreads back and put on a pretty dress and bend over and scoop up the $3,000 train of my sister's wedding dress so it wouldn't drag in the dirt. Funny how worried we were about keeping her dress clean when when our insides were steeped in shit. The irony, the sadness and dysfunction that everyone chose to be blind to was traumatizing for me. When I returned home, I found out Trump had won the presidential election, and then I found out the sex of my baby. The child I was carrying was a daughter. I wasn't expecting the depression I felt over that. I felt it would be easier for me to think about bringing a boy into this world than to have to try and explain it to a daughter. I was finding it difficult to be a woman in a world where I saw misogyny and racism, gender inequality and rape culture. I saw messages in our mainstream culture and especially in our newly elected president telling girls it's okay to be objectified and she's only worth something if she's pretty. I wasn't sure if I was up to the task of empowering my daughter to sort through all the bullshit and to raise her with courage and without shame. My birth experience with Betty was unmedicated. I'd had a traumatic experience with an epidural giving birth to my son and chose not to have one the second time around. I was terrified to face the pain of childbirth. It broke me the first time. What I learned when anticipating Betty's birth is you can't control your fear. So don't even try. What we can control is the way we face our fears. I decided I was going to face my fear with grace, courtesy, kindness, and a sense of acceptance. That choice empowered me to rise up and feel in control despite my fear. For the five hours I was in the intense part of active labor, I sat on an exercise ball and I went deep, working all the while to do the counter instinctual 
to accept what I wanted to deny, to relax what I wanted to clench, to remember to breathe when I forgot to exhale, to face fear with humility. Each contraction I allowed. I traveled into and out of the contractions. Like a shaman travels beyond the veil of reality, I was able to do so in labor and delivery. And I traveled to a place where I connected with my infinite unwavering power. I rose up against my fear and adversity and I ate it for breakfast. Giving birth to Betty gave me a sense of peace with myself and with life. I felt free. I felt older, stronger, wiser. I was able to see adversity for what it is and that it is necessary. Only when faced with adversity can you realize you're big enough to overcome it. In the aftermath of Betty's birth, I got my first taste of what it felt like to feel worthy. No pretending necessary. My feelings of peace, freedom, strength, and elation lasted a couple months before the hardship of caring for two babies settled in. Once more, I was called to level up and realize there was no more room in my life for my daily alcohol and marijuana use. I challenged myself to go 30 days without drugs or alcohol, and it was eye-opening. After a lifetime connection with alcohol and marijuana, it was terrifying to give up. I realized I was able to live, live life more honestly when sober. I was more present because I wasn't chasing the dragon. I was able to remember to do the simple little self-care activities that add up, like taking vitamins and brushing teeth. Everything felt more clear. I learned how to stick with the hard parts of my day instead of reaching for a way out. I learned that choosing not to escape paid off in the long run. I thought weed and alcohol were simply medicinal substances that helped me relax. In actuality, they led me astray from my heart's true yearnings and made me forget that the only way out is through. No matter what, life is hard. It's like one long process of labor, delivery, and rebirth over and over again. When I was pregnant, choosing between an epidural and an unmedicated birth, I chose not to have the epidural because I knew that would make things harder for me in the long run. Because with the epidural, I'd be giving up my senses and range of movement. Life is filled with difficulties at every turn, and we're often called to choose our hard. Which hard is going to make us stronger and more clear in the long run? Which hard will shove us deeper into our hole? I think the trick is to discern which hard will get you through and which hard will keep you stuck. I had to kick the substances in order to gain the clarity of mind to help me discern which was which. I experienced an amazing revelation. I can actually be happy sober. I also realized the goal isn't actually happiness. It's wisdom. There's supposed to be imperfection, pain, difficulty, and fatigue. It's the pain experiences from which we gain the clarity and wisdom. I learned to sit 
with the heavy emotions that would move through me and noticed how they really only lasted in my body for about a minute and a half before the experience shifted subtly into something else. We're so afraid of that minute and a half of discomfort when really it's the resisting is what causes suffering. We can resist a negative feeling for 30 years when all it would take is a minute and a half to let it move through you. So I've spent the last two years going through phases of sobriety and then slipping back into drinking and smoking. I've always noticed I'm more clear, strong, and connected with myself when I'm not using substances. The truth is, is that I'm an addict. I'm addicted to wanting to escape my present moment at all moments of the day. I'm constantly wanting to check out. If it's not through alcohol, it's through scrolling on my phone, food, circular patterns of thinking, even self-improvement can be an addiction for me. So I don't really feel that proud of myself when I can go a stretch of time abstaining from a substance. That turns out it's not quite the point for me. I think the point is being able to stay with myself and cultivate awareness of the moments I notice myself seeking escape and then leaning into the reasons behind that. And that's a lifelong everyday practice. So here I am. In many ways, I'm still the girl with pigtails and pink skates. And I'm the teen who wants love. And I'm the mother facing depression and addiction on a daily basis. I'm also so much more. Most importantly, I'm here. I'm still here. I've fallen and I've risen. I've burned and I've been reforged. Each time I've burned, I've had the opportunity to release, like smoke and ashes, that which has held me down. The burning hurts, but it's necessary and it's purifying. And if you can be with it, you realize a limitless power and strength resides within you. You realize you're still here, despite your trials and stronger for them. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Diving Into Caitlin's Story. Um, we really appreciate you being here. If you'd like to help support us, send us some little love, please rate and subscribe to us. It really means a lot. helps keep this podcast moving forward. If you'd like to learn more about Caitlin's story, check out our website. We have a lot of cool little information about Caitlin, a little bit more about her story. We also have journal articles and exercises for you to help stimulate your emotional and mental well-being so check those out we release a journal journal article every week and a podcast every two weeks um, you can also reach out to us at the survivor story on instagram and the survivor story podcast on facebook there you'll find a little snippets of people's stories a little bit more about guests and it's a really awesome way to be connected and involved with the storytelling community at the survivor story podcast so check those out and we'll just move right into the q a 
So how are you feeling? I'm feeling like I just told my life story. <laughs> well, you did. <laughs> and um, I'm feeling a range of emotions. Um, shallow fears. Did I tell that accurately? Did I include all the information? Um, vulnerability. I'm feeling vulnerable. Um, using my voice is still a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm also feeling grateful. Mm -hmm. I feel relieved. It was really a healing experience to dredge up everything from the very beginning of my life and just put it in a cohesive um, story and then just to let it out. Like, I feel like my story was not the only thing that was just let out just now. I feel... I feel like I just let a lot of things go. Hmm. So I'm grateful wow. for that. Yeah. Hey, we, were very, we are very grateful for you coming here and sharing your story. Um, I'm very grateful to know you. We met each other through yoga teacher training. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this, you said this is one of the first times that you shared your mm -hmm. kind of entire story? The entire thing. Yeah. So many details, actually, I've never shared with anybody. Hmm. Um, Jeff uh, knows the whole story. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I, I keep it pretty closed up. Yeah. So. Well, thank you for sh sharing with me and then anyone who listens. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I just, I hope this can um, encourage and give permission to others to share their story. Yes. Because um, it should be normalized. It should. Um, because standing from the perspective of somebody that was just able to spit it out, the whole dang thing, uh, it does feel relieving. And I feel my whole life I have longed for a sense of human connection. Hmm. Um, and I think storytelling is, is one way to, to find that. So it feels good. So you say you long for human connection which I think a lot of us do. I wonder, what does that feel like for you? It feels like, like, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. That I'm seen. Um, validated. Um, feels brave. Uh, because my whole life, I think I have um, kept myself from being seen because I've been afraid of um, negative feedback. So I've, I've closed myself off. But um, finding validation within myself, from myself. Um, so when I receive feedback from the external world, be it positive or negative, um, it doesn't have to affect me so much. Mm. 
Um, so getting back to your original question, what does human connection feel like? Uh, there's many layers of what that could feel like. Um, if I really tap into like my heart space, human connection feels fuzzy, <laughs> um, like a hug. On a verbal level, uh, human connection feels like I can fall over and, and someone can catch me. Hmm. Or I can I can help hold someone else up and they can do the same for me. That's great. <laughs> um, the reason I ask is, I guess this, I mean, I seek the same thing and have had um, trouble allowing myself to feel that that there's been a lot of times I've been in places of support and human connection, mm -hmm. but not allowed myself to feel that. Mm -hmm. And for me, there's been this practice of like consciously allowing that. And so that's why I was kind of curious on your process. Where have you felt that the most? Nowhere. Nowhere. <laughs> Probably right now, because huh. I just sat and told you my story for a really long time, yeah. and you sat and listened to it. Yeah. Like, it is actually very rare that we as humans give each other the time and space to be listened to and, and to listen to others. I think... Um, I don't think I'm alone. I think I think it's it's difficult for many people to struggle with opening up themselves to human connection and um even in supportive and communal um environments I still don't open up. Uh, even during the whole yoga teacher training um, where I came to realize that I was safe in a group with like-minded people and people with just lovely hearts mm -hmm. and um, who were safe for me to be around, even then, um, I think I was able to open up a little bit more towards the end, but man, it was hard. So I can definitely say... I have a strong sense of connection with my husband. Yeah. But outside of that, it's um it definitely takes some work for me to have the courage to open up and and like kind of just be honest, take down that facade that uh, I was sort of conditioned to put up in front of people. Um Yeah. I feel really grateful hearing your story and I think it's something that, whether it feels like it or not, people are interested in. I know for me, I was like very interested in hearing your full story. And I mean, part of the reason I chose you to be on this podcast was because I've heard parts of it. And I don't even know if those parts were even covered in this. This is like a whole new bag. Yeah. And it was amazing and awesome. And um, I remember when you sent over um, your outline or your story over to for me to look at and I was like oh my gosh this is it's a lot it's a lot yeah and it's something I think is very powerful and healing for others to hear and so I'm very grateful I I wonder did you have any role models along the way that you heard talk about how they deal with things or like where did you learn to kind of start taking mm -hmm. things inward and looking at that, was it just like this natural, like life just brought you to it? Or did you see others and witness others? Um, 
curious. Great question. Um, the answer to that is no. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, as it is very difficult for me to open up to people, of course, that wouldn't present a situation in which I can look up to a role model or have mm. some sort of mentor relationship. Um, I think my natural from birth pure tendency is to, I've always been sort of, for lack of a better word in this moment, I've always been sort of heady. Um, uh, I've, God, I mean, I, I, I've always had a connection with nature. I've my growing up in my family of origin, I felt literally like I was an alien from outer space. I would, I really thought I was adopted Hmm. (laughs) because in the culture of my family of origin, it, uh, it was not acceptable to seek a mentor because in their culture, um, it it was a very, um, image-based, um, way of living in which we had to formulate this facade of perfection. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't a natural thing to seek help out there, be it from a mentor or a therapist or, um, or a teacher, like we were supposed to already know all the answers. So I wasn't taught to even think that was something I could have. Um, I have one throughout high school. Absolutely not. Like high school was a shit show. Mm -hmm. Um, I, and I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have even thought to think, oh, geez, that person could help me. I just, I, I was in this mode of thinking, this mental attitude in which I needed to be perceived by others as someone who was absolutely perfect and had all the answers and did not need a mentor. So it wasn't until uh, maybe college I had one English teacher that I thought was cool and he kind of opened my mind to um, a lot of things such as the idea of privilege. Um, up until then, I had grown up in a bubble, like I said, in, in an affluent neighborhood, and in that, I rarely went out of that neighborhood. Um, and I just kind of thought that uh, everybody lived like that. But once you go to college, and, and I was still in that bubble in college because I was in a sorority with other people that came from similar affluent neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. They just brought the bubble from Southern California <laughs> over to Arizona. Mm-hmm. And, and so I still, I, I thought I was moving out of my home, but I still just kind of found the same dynamic For in sure. college. And I rarely went to class, but I did go to my English classes because my English teacher was cool and he actually saw me, you know, he, uh, I would turn in my assignments and my papers and, and he actually read them and he actually gave me feedback that was validating. And, um, he made me feel like I had some, he helped me tap, tap into my, um, my dream and talent of writing. So that was the first sort of kind of pseudo mentor I had. Of course, I was like terrified to like talk to him and I never would really. (laughs) But through uh, his lessons during class and the feedback he would give to me from my assignments that I'm rambling. I know. Sorry. (laughs) Through his feedback, that kind of helped um, feel like I had someone to look up to. And uh, where... Did I find the shift 
from feeling like I needed to be perceived as perfect to feeling like I actually want to do some inner growing. The answer to that question is uh, when my friend Kate, who befriended me, um, my Tucson local friend, Mm started taking me out and taking me yoga classes. She took me to this really small hole-in-the-wall yoga studio called Yoga Oasis just off campus. It was just a small place, and we started going to these happy hour yoga classes that were $4 a pop, Um, and (laughs) it was great for a college kid. And uh, the, the teacher that would teach these happy hour yoga classes was Darren Rhodes, and I didn't even, like, this was back in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had taken yoga before. My mom was into yoga, actually. Mm. And um, she introduced me to yoga when I was about 12. Mm. But I still, like, it never, I didn't really find it for myself until I went to these classes with Darren Rhodes. And it was it was never really anything that he said or did in these classes. All I remember he had this powerful presence and this ability to um, guide your vision inwards. Mm. And I was a 20-year-old alcoholic at the time that would find literally these oasis, these little pockets of an hour of yoga in which space was created mm-hmm. within me. I was able to separate um, uh, my sort of thoughts and anxiety and, and pain. I was able to cultivate awareness, which created um, space in between my awareness and the pain. And I remember, you know, at the end of these hour-long classes, laying in Shavasana and feeling completely transformed. So when you ask me about mentors, I never really had a mentor, um, just people that helped guide me on sort of where to look and where to go. And it was really my yoga practice that created a a big shift for me. Interesting. Wow. Um, You also said that you did a lot of reading and writing and, um, you know, it seemed like that was one of the college classes where you excelled. <laughs> yeah. anything. Um, I'm curious on uh, what do you like to write? Mm-hmm. And also, do you believe that writing has had an impact on, I guess, your growth or your process or mm-hmm. um, any shifts you've made? I have such a complicated relationship with my writing practice because when I was younger, and keep in mind, I have been writing down stories, fictional stories, from the time I learned how to write my letters. Hmm. Um, I remember in kindergarten, there was, um, around Halloween time, there was a spooky story competition and I, I like won the competition about this cute little ghost. That's just a, an example to illustrate that my writing, my, my, um, that art form has always been my, my uh, desired and closest art form to my heart. And yet, despite this, it was always something that was frowned upon in my um, childhood. Uh, I was always by my parents and um, family encouraged 
away from writing. I was Mm. not encouraged to be sitting in my room, isolated, writing stories. I was very much kicked metaphorically from the back, like into the party of life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I hated it. I just wanted to be in my room writing. Um, So when it came time to choose my major in college, of course, what I really wanted to major in was creative writing. But that was not something in my parents' opinion that could make any money. And they never um, sort of acknowledged any talent within me when it comes to writing. So uh, I ended up choosing a major that I ended up doing nothing with, uh, communications, which is pretty broad, but I'm like, well, communication is kind of like writing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is a long roundabout way of saying, uh, your first question is, what do I like to write? Yeah is my heart's desire, what really tickles me, is to write fan- fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> um, science fiction. I like, I like science fiction and fantasy. Um, but that was always treated in my upbringing as something completely ridiculous and a, cha- and, and a waste of time. Mm. So to this day, as a 33-year-old woman with my own family and my own life, I still don't let myself write what I really want to write because the conditioned belief that it's a waste of time is so deeply rooted inside of me. So what I end up writing is like blog, like a mom blog. <laughs> like I write, I write about motherhood because yeah. that's my uh, current experience. And um, when I first had my kids, as I mentioned in my story, I had a really tough time at first, and nobody told me that it was going to be hard, and I felt really alone. And so I started writing. Um, and publishing blog posts about my experience as a mom because maybe I thought that maybe someone out there is like me and maybe Mm. if she could read something that resonates, she might not feel so alone. So I started writing and publishing um, blogs about motherhood um, in an effort to um, connect with other people. But to be completely honest... I, it's not my, I don't, I actually don't really like it. (laughs) I, the thing is, is that, um, it's not fully me. There are women out there, just beautiful, admirable, respectable women that I look up to that are just wonderful mothers and have beautiful blogs. Um, but I always feel like I'm a poser when I'm Mm. posting a, 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 a piece of writing on my blog. Hmm. Um, it's not that it's inauthentic. I try to be as authentic as possible because that's what's gonna that 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 is the heart of the connection. Um, but it's just not what I want to be doing with my time. I really just want to be writing fiction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you find your way there. I think I will. I will. <laughs> I'll get there. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was thinking. When you were in that hot tub and you prayed to whoever, whatever, um, please help me be a woman, Mm -hmm. 
What did that mean to you? What did what did, what were you? What did woman oh, mean to man, you? What a deep question. You're asking me these deep questions, and I'm trying to be succinct. But You're great. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you for giving me the time and space to formulate yeah. an answer. <sighs> My whole life, and this, I want to preface with saying uh, this most likely isn't every girl's experience. But my whole life, I had been treated like an object Mm -hmm. from girlhood, from from the girl that turned herself into an object of a joke just to, you know, redirect attention into something that's lighter to um, the young girl that uh, had her hair curled and makeup put on and costumes put on and put on stage to be some sort of entertainment to the uh, teenager that um, was so used to being an object, just kind of let her body just be like an object of use for somebody else. So I reached this time in adulthood in which I had finally fallen and allowed myself to be in a healthy relationship with a a man that I truly loved and respected and admired, a man that I wanted to be a woman for and not an object. I wanted... um, I wanted to contact my sense of self Hmm. Um, I had always turned myself off in order to be whoever the person in front of me wanted me to be Hmm. so that's what I meant by please help me be a woman because I didn't want to just be a facade I didn't want to just be an object that other people used I, I wanted I wanted to be the I wanted to be someone who has something to give um, that I chose that I choose you know when I'm when I was when I would be in front of somebody I'm very um, I can be very charming like I, I can be very uh, observant mm-hmm. and in my and calculating like okay what does this person want and then I formulate myself to be that person and I didn't want to do that anymore. Like, I just wanted to be me. Yeah. And I was about 26 when I had that moment in the bathtub in which I wanted to go from being an object to being like a living, breathing, um, feeling human being. Um, and that's a long time to go, like not being in contact with who you are. Yeah. So to sum up like what I meant by please help me be a woman is I I wanted to be in contact with my feelings Hmm. my whole life I just disassociated like I cut off my feelings in order to be whoever the the other person wanted me to be so I wanted to courageously like own my feelings and own my existence and own my person yeah beautiful you said that you you know, in your story, you said you lost touch with yourself, and it sounded like 
being a woman was what you meant by that is like kind of reconnecting with yourself and allowing that to take up space yes right um do you feel like that like happened at that moment Mm. or do you feel like it's been a process Mm -hmm. it's been a process yeah I was introduced to the concept in that moment Mm. and there was a temporary sort of relief in space after that happens like oh like I can be me I don't have to care about what other people think of me. I don't have to tr- I don't have to care whether I can trust other people to accept me because what matters is whether I trust or not. Huh. Like um that was an that was an outrageous idea and it took years actually to come into realizing that. Years. Um time for a, a lot of the times, it just takes time to start embodying these concepts that you're introduced to. Um, after I had that experience, um, I got this tattoo on my arm, which is an image of a feminine form. And it was a nice reminder. It's on my right, my right arm, which is my strong arm, and it's an arm that I do that I reach out to the world with. At the time, I was a barista and uh, serving coffee drinks and serving all walks of life. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, it, it's my serving hand, and it's a hand that I see often. And I think having this visual that I see on a daily basis could help connect me back with that true yearning that I have to 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 be the one that is not a victim um, or the one that's not worried about um, what I'm being given or not, but one that is willing to rise up and be the giver. Hmm. And to me, that's what being a woman is. It's, it's someone who has the courage to rise up and be the giver. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I also heard within your story um, that you're like, Kevin, I have not resolved this yet. <laughs> I mean, like, like you're like, oh, resolution, like, resolution. What is this? <laughs> um, uh, and I and I also heard, like what I'm saying is I heard um, also the idea that like being always happy is a facade, mm-hmm. um, in a sense, um, and it's something that maybe we relate on or not, but in like my life, right when you you brought up in a family to look perfect happiness is that perfect right mm-hmm. looking happy mm-hmm. and then there is this incongruency with not feeling happy on the inside but having to act happy on the outside mm-hmm. and that's what perfect is and and so th- there's just this incongruency and I wonder and you're saying that you know life is struggle that's another thing that you kind of mentioned within your story of how much struggle there is within life and when we are forcing ourselves to be in that happiness space, we are negating any other emotion that might come up. Yes. And they just come up no matter what. <laughs> they keep trying to come up. And there's almost this long battle that happens of trying to push away all those emotions. But in doing so, those emotions stay up a lot longer. Yes. And it seems like in your process, 
a big shift that happened was to turn back inside and to sit with those emotions Mm -hmm. and noticing that right I could sit with I could push these emotions away for 30 years or I can sit with it for a minute and a half and it lessens or passes or mm-hmm. maybe and it comes back another day. It does come back. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't know if this is necessarily focused in a question, but um, where does, I guess, happiness place in your, mm. your process in your life um, and your resolution? Oh, man. Happiness was a pipe dream. (laughs) It's a pipe dream. Like, it literally is, like, sold by marketing companies. Uh, uh, It it is created. Um, Where does happiness... Okay, so I mentioned in my story that right after I had kids, I realized I was in trouble, and my kids were going to be in trouble if I stayed the way I was. Hmm. And so I'm like, oh, here's what I need. I need to be happy, hmm. like truly happy. Like as, as you mentioned, my whole life I'd acted happy, yeah. but acting is much different than actually being happy. Um, and you're right. If you um, suppress that those, those heavy emotions and not... Um, uh, sit with them. They they're still there, and they will come out in other ways, in in maybe a behavior or or or, or other ways. And so, what the interesting turn of events that I took in my happiness journey. Is, uh, is when I realized that it wasn't actually happiness that I wanted. Hmm. Because happiness actually is uh, something that, like the struggle experiences in your body, like the pain experiences in your body, happiness is also something that is not lasting and then just kind of moves through you. Um, you're right, uh, you you can sit uh, if if you happen to be in a difficult moment. You can sit with that sort of tension in your heart. Everybody might feel it differently. Sometimes people feel it in their throats or their hearts or their belly. But whether it is what wherever um, you you feel it, there. I think it's unmistakable when you're feeling. Um, discomfort in your body due to a to a heavy emotion and and when you sit with that you notice like i mentioned within a couple minutes if you have the courage it's really really scary and really hard but if you have the courage to actually feel into it and really get in there with your mental attention um it does sort of maybe change location in your body or or it shifts into something um different i just did this practice last night actually um and i didn't want to sit i had i had this darkness in my heart and i didn't want to sit with it but i did and i noticed even when i was sitting with it there was still resistance to it and when i noticed that resistance to it um i sort of Uh, I decided to give it a hug. Hmm. 
<laughs> and when I gave it a hug, it softened and it became less um, torturous. <laughs> and uh, so that that's a practice that you can do, just watching your pain shift and soften as you accept it and hug it more and more. Um, my point is, is that happiness is the same thing, only the opposite end of the spectrum or the flip side of the coin. Uh, it, it also doesn't last in your body that much. So it's just like chasing, chasing your next, you know, hit of heroin or chasing your next drink or chasing your, uh, I mean, we, we, we've, we've all got things that we can chase that we think are going to give us a happy, pleasurable experience. So when I realize that happiness actually doesn't last, it's like a cloud that just moves through the sky of your being. Uh, I realized that it's, like I mentioned before, it's actually um, wisdom, I think, is the source of that true experience of happiness that I think we're trying to talk about. Mm. Um, The wisdom of... uh, it's knowledge, I think, is that is what we're getting to. It's it's knowing that uh, the suffering that we're feeling is actually uh, coming from our resistance to the pain that we don't want to feel. Hmm. There's this whole saying. Uh... Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have that written down in one of my notebooks, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's also the practice of hugging those dark, heavy places. It's such a beautiful practice because it's really learning how to love every part of ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Even the parts that we don't like, mm-hmm. instead of like negating it, pushing away, saying like, you're not supposed to be here instead of like welcoming it and hugging it. And I, I have similar processes and that's been something that's been so healing um, in my life. We are going to shift gears real quick. Okay, cool. Uh, We have three questions that we ask every guest. Okay. Uh, These are the hard questions. Uh Not kidding. (laughs) Um, So the first question what are you up to now? What does your ideal day look like? Oh gosh, that's a great question because <laughs> this, um, I guess, uh, conversation that I'm having with you, this this opportunity to share my story, I feel like in some ways is pretty symbolic for me, and it's a represent representation of me actually shifting gears hmm. from what I have been doing up until now recently, and I would like to now start stepping into something a little bit different. Up until now, as you know, I just um, recently finished a yoga teacher training and I would like to continue teaching or teaching yoga in any capacity that I can, but I have sort of a loose, um, grip on that. I'm kind of just kind of showing up uh, as, as, as long as people want me to show up. (laughs) But, uh, what my true, um, desire and dream is is to develop a um a writing schedule for myself and i would like to begin writing a book so that's what i'm doing now uh (laughs) 
I got to let myself do it. Um, I've got some hurdles, some inner hurdles to jump over, like the uh, um, listening to that little voice every time that I sit down at my computer to open up my little fantasy story. Like, I've got this little voice inside of my head that says, this is a waste of time. I've got to get over that Mm. because the truth of the matter is, is that it's not a waste of time if I find it to be fun. And I do. And so that's my main um, goal with life right now is to simply just have fun with it. Hmm. I want to start doing things that I have fun with. Yeah. And up until now, like I mentioned, I, I have been, you know, posting stuff about motherhood on Instagram and and I had been maintaining a blog uh, but like I had mentioned, I'm beginning to sort of lose my energy and, and that's beginning to fizzle out a little bit because I am starting to want to refocus and direct my time doing things that really tickle me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm going to start doing. And of course, every single day is filled with my two children. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> like the main thing. I just kind of squeeze into the cracks that I have of time, um, these other sort of um, personal hobbies that I have. Yeah, awesome. If you need any support around even just getting up and writing or whatever um, in any capacity, I am here to help you with that process. Um, Also, do you have any favorite books to recommend? Oh it could be God. fiction, nonfiction, self-help, oh whatever. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I wish you would have um, presented with these presented me with these questions <laughs> earlier so I could have come prepared. Yeah, it's oh better when you're not prepared, so though, trust Oh, me. my God. Okay. <laughs> hmm. Well, at the moment, I'm reading A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And I'm loving that because it is... Um, it's all about the ego. Mm-hmm. Have you read it? Um, or you know about it? What's his other book? Oh, God. Oh, I know, what's it called? called? But, um, but the, like, the Power of, of Now? The Power of Now, yes. So I read, I've read the majority of that one. Yeah. But uh, I have not read The New Earth. I recommend A New Earth. I, I've read like maybe half of a yeah, that's now. Kind of where I got. <laughs> yeah and but I think I was in the wrong space of my life when I picked it mm. up because I read it and I think I just wasn't ready to receive it and I ended up picking this one up a new earth and it's actually um, I'm, I'm kind of zooming through it because it is very um, the way that it's written is uh, sort of easy to, to um, receive mm. and pick up cool. and it, he he talks in a very clear understandable way about the uh the structure of of our ego and and its Hmm. um and its desires and motivations and how um it can kind of control our experience and also i do believe that that earth and and humanity and it's just an existence is always evolving and i think it is time to start exploring um these aspects of ourselves that we have thus far as a collective been allowing um to control us Hmm. whereas i do think that uh the the ego is um a, a, a very useful servant but oftentimes we can let it be a master, and in that situation, it's not as useful. 
Beautiful. <laughs> nice little synopsis as well. Oh, yeah, well, that's just one book. I mean, I got fiction ones, too, I could talk about. But uh, for the sake of brevity, we could probably yeah. just leave it there. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great book to recommend. Um, cool. And then the last question, comment. Um, if you were looking someone in the eyes who is struggling going through wow. similar hardships what would you say to them oh, i would say you're safe mm-hmm. you are safe and you are supported and it's okay it's okay that you are feeling this now mm-hmm. and don't try to force or do anything different you're okay and breathe into this and do what you need to do to allow your body to feel a little bit more comfortable. You are free to move around. Breathe through this. Don't force anything. Just stay right here. You are supported and you are safe. Well, thank you very much for being here, being on the podcast, for sharing yourself. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm very grateful. (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to listening to the Survivor Story podcast and diving into Caitlin's story and listening to her experience and her strength. Please rate and subscribe. Send us love on Instagram and Facebook at the Survivor Story and the Survivor Story podcast. Also, check out our website, For our journal articles, our links to Caitlin's story and the books that she recommends, we really hope that you enjoyed this story and our next story will be out in a couple weeks, so please tune in. And if you'd like to hear a little bit of the story, little snippets of the story, you can go to our Instagram at The Survivor Story or our Facebook at The Survivor Story Podcast and check out what our next story is going to be about. So I hope you have an amazing day and an amazing week. May we always be gentle with our heart.